Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, November 10th, 2022. It's been 3,179 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 260 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that Russian forces would retreat from the West Bank of the Dnipro over the next three to seven weeks was accurate, with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu ordering the safe evacuation of Russian personnel and equipment on November 9th. Second, we assess Russia will conduct a fighting retreat from Kherson that will become increasingly chaotic and will be completed by December 31st. Third, We maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Fourth, we assess that the Kremlin is attempting to better manage the information space regarding the Kherson withdrawal due to eroding trust in the Kremlin within Russia. Fifth, we maintain that the Russian Navy's presence in the Black Sea has become irrelevant with missile carriers reluctant to patrol beyond the immediate coast of Sevastopol. Sixth, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, and maintain our concern that a large wave is about to begin. Seventh, we assess that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective and is only capable of mounting effective defensive operations. Eighth, We maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Ninth, we maintain that the so-called evacuations in Kherson are part of an organized genocide against the Ukrainian people. Tenth, we assess that Rasputitsa is coming to an end, and forecast models indicate that significant snow is coming to regions of Ukraine within the next 7 to 10 days. 11th, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat for an invasion of western Ukraine, but we now assess the possibility has pushed further out to the next 60 to 90 days. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The updated Russian objective is to execute a controlled withdrawal of all Russian troops and equipment located west of the Dnipro River, protect the Novokohovka ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, 
and prevent Ukrainian-tubed artillery from coming into range of the Dnipro River crossings. The updated Ukrainian objective is to maximize Russian casualties during their withdrawal across the Dnipro, convince Russian military units to surrender versus waiting to cross the river, complete the liberation of the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River, and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system or MLRS attacks on Mykolaiv. In a staged meeting shared by Russian state media, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu ordered the complete withdrawal of Russian troops from the west bank of the Dnipro River. The made-for-TV order was given to Colonel General Sergei Sorovyakin, the commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine. Sorovyakin has been given the near-impossible task of completing the, quote, safe transfer of personnel, weapons, and equipment, end quote, to the east bank of the Dnipro, where ready-made defenses have been built. The Kremlin stated that half of the troops in Kherson would be deployed to, quote, other fronts, which would include the 76th and 106th Airborne Assault, or VDV, regiments, and Russian naval infantry. Some assessment here. Sudovyakin has been ordered to withdraw, but that does not mean that Russian forces withdrew yesterday or are going to withdraw today. By some estimates, up to 30,000 Russian forces are in a technical encirclement on the west bank of the Dnipro, with limited options for evacuation. The controlled fighting withdrawal will take weeks to complete. The public setting for the order and the explanation for why the decision was necessary were a rare event of some degree of honesty coming from the Kremlin. Shoigu stated that the reason for ordering the retreat was Russia's inability to maintain supplies for Russian troops on the West Bank. Not to say we told you so, but on September 1st, we assessed that this would be the outcome. For those of you who listened to the podcast, you'd find it on September 2nd's episode. We wrote, quote, We maintain that Ukraine is not seeking a kinetic victory, but intends to starve Russian forces of supplies. It is essential to recognize that 25,000 Russian troops are in a technical encirclement west of the Dnipro River. Russian military doctrine is heavily dependent on artillery fire. Consumption of ammunition, fuel, medicine, and spare parts is unsustainable due to the destroyed G-locks. Remember, those are supply lines. Ukrainian soldiers report that Russian forces are throwing, quote, everything they have against their advances. Additionally, any Russian position abandoned with equipment or ammunition left behind can almost immediately be put into service by Ukraine. It could take days, weeks, or even months for Russian supplies to become exhausted, but at some point they will run out of resources if they don't regain control of the bridges and repair them. End quote. On August 13th, after Ukraine started targeting the four critical river crossings using rockets fired by HIMARS, we provided our assessment on how to identify when the supply situation was reaching a critical level, writing, quote, Russian battalion tactical groups, or BTGs, are designed to operate for three to five days independent of resupply. Signs that the supply situation is getting more severe won't appear for weeks, but would include abandoned vehicles, increasing complaints about a lack of resources on Telegram, VK, and LiveJournal, looting for food and fuel, and a reduction in artillery fire among frontline units. End quote. Supply issues started to appear by early September and only worsened through October. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that two towns were liberated. On the northern front, Kalinivsky was back under Ukrainian control. Russian forces also withdrew from Pravdine, 
retreating between November 8th and 9th. The settlement has been the scene of heavy fighting for weeks. Reliable Ukrainian sources are reporting that Russian VDV troops and the 205th Regiment withdrew from Snikhodivka overnight. We can't validate the report's veracity, but multiple Russian sources reported heavy fighting in the settlement yesterday and claimed Ukraine had entered the northern areas. We've adjusted the map and consider the town contested until there is further evidence. Breaking news, there is further evidence. As we were finishing this report, a geolocated video was shared showing Ukrainian troops in Snikhurivka, confirming the withdrawal of all Russian forces. This confirms that the order to retreat was sincere. This was a critical defensive point and supply node for Russian troops. Based on this information, we've shaded the entire occupied region west of the Dnipro as contested. Some assessment here. We don't see Russian troops having a viable path for a safe and organized withdrawal across the Dnipro with minimal casualties. Russia must evacuate the equivalent of one-fifteenth of the force trapped at Dunkirk, France, over a much shorter distance. The weapon systems available to Ukraine today are vastly superior in lethality, range, and effectiveness, and can be fired out of the range of most Russian weapon systems. In our assessment, Russia will use Mobix to hold the current defensive lines to keep conventional barrel artillery out of the range of the Antonovsky Bridge and Novokohovka areas. Of course, that won't stop multiple launch rocket systems or MLRS and HIMARS from striking the river crossings. Russia will have to employ blocking troops to keep the Mobix in place to prevent a mass surrender or retreat, eroding morale even further. Ukraine will not attack fortified Russian positions. Instead, they'll seek to bypass strongholds and probe for weaknesses. If Ukraine can advance 20 kilometers closer to Kherson from the northwest or the northeast, they could bring the river crossings into artillery range. We also assess that Russian military leaders will sacrifice some units, likely inexperienced Mobics from the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, or LNR and DNR, and Chechen Territorial Guard. If the Russian military can't keep barrel artillery out of range of the river crossings, the result could be catastrophic for Russian troops. Russian occupation puppet Deputy Governor of the Kherson Oblast Kirill Stremusov was killed in a rollover car accident on November 9th, which would be yesterday. It was reported that he died in Khenichesk at the Kherson-Crimea administrative border, but geolocation of pictures from the accident scene showed the accident happened in Novokakhovka. Stramusov was not wearing a seatbelt at the time of the accident, which likely contributed to his fatal injuries. There are no open suggestions of foul play or the FSB cleaning house as part of the retreat. Russian occupiers announced that ferry crossings for civilians had been suspended for the fourth time since the last week of October, claiming that not enough residents were requesting evacuation. We remain skeptical that this is accurate, and further, we assess that river crossings for civilians will become increasingly dangerous in the coming weeks. It was reported that Russian occupiers had stopped paying civil servants and pensioners. Operational Command South reported that the Ukrainian Air Force carried out eight airstrikes and ground forces completed more than a hundred fire missions. A convoy of Russian troops and equipment attempting to cross at Novokakhovka was struck with up to 125 casualties, and air assets destroyed a Russian ammunition depot near Bedislav. It was once again quiet in Mykolaiv, 
and in our assessment, the beleaguered city will be the biggest benefactor of the Russian withdrawal. Once Russian troops complete their retreat, missiles and drone strikes will have to be fired from a longer range, providing Ukrainian air defenses time to target and destroy incoming munitions and more lead time for people to move to shelters. Some more somber assessment here. While there is hope for further good news in Kherson, and it appears the Ukrainian strategy to force Russian troops to retreat was effective, there are mass graves northwest of Kherson that were spotted by satellites in March and continued to expand through June. It should be expected that as the Russian withdrawal accelerates, extensive war crimes will be discovered throughout the region, though winter weather and frozen soil may complicate or delay investigations until the spring. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains unchanged, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not provided an update since November 5th. There has also not been an update on the status of the kidnapped Enerhoatom employee in Russian custody. At the time of recording, there were no reports of significant shelling of the Nikopol region. The logistics center in Dnipro that was destroyed in the early morning hours of November 9th was a post office sorting hub. Thousands of letters and packages were destroyed. Two of the wounded have improved from critical to serious condition after successful surgery. The Vilnyansk district of Zaporizhia was attacked by S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack. The missiles struck a farm and destroyed barns containing grain. There were no injuries reported. Otherwise, there was only sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Mali Sherbaki. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Mercenaries with War Gonzo reported that fighting continued near Pavlivka, and Russian troops had once again reached the southeast corner. A reliable Ukrainian source reported the same, while Rybar and the GSAFU did not mention fighting for control of the town. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR maintained its military traditions and attacked the eastern edge of Novomikhailivka without success. Fighting west of Donetsk was only positional after a hard push by the DNR producing marginal gains. Russian forces attempted to advance into Pervomaisky without success and tried to capture the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky. Wargonzo reported that Russian troops tried to advance on Krasnohorivka but could not break through Ukrainian defenses. The DNR People's Militia Public Relations Channel claimed that their forces destroyed an S-21 Grad rocket MLRS and three tanks, without evidence of any kind, as always. Ukrainian forces completed more than 110 fire missions on Russian-controlled targets. Officials of the self-declared and illegally annexed Donetsk People's Republic announced that rolling blackouts might have to be expanded due to serious damage to the electrical grid in the occupied territories. In northeast Donetsk, the most intense fighting in Ukraine was around Solidar, 
with the private military company or PMC Wagner Group attempting to advance on the suburb of Yakovlivka and into Solidar from the Naufgyps sheetrock factory. They were not successful. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on Bakhmut, Odradivka, Glishivka, and Mayorsk. PMC Wagner reportedly crossed the T-513 highway and were operating north of Opitne, placing Ukrainian troops in a salient. Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on the Bilohorivka in Donetsk and the Vesele located north of Yakovlivka. Moving on to Luhansk, Russian forces repeated their attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, without success. Okay, quick sidebar here. With the line of conflict more or less frozen, we're going to have to start getting creative with how we write about this region. Ukrainian forces defended Novoselivsky from a Russian attack. Russian forces, mostly comprised of Mobiks, attempted another advance on Makhivka and suffered catastrophic losses. Ukrainian military leaders claim more than 300 Russian troops were killed or wounded in the failed attack. Otherwise, there was positional fighting and probing for weaknesses by both belligerents along the rest of the line of conflict. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromada of Esmen was hit by 20 grad rockets fired from MLRS loaded with incendiary rounds. The attack set a cornfield on fire, but otherwise there were no reports of damage or injuries. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, 12 ships of the Black Sea fleet were on patrol today, but none were missile carriers. Some assessment here? The leadership of the Black Sea Fleet has been reluctant to sail armed warships from Sevastopol since the October 29th attack. In our assessment, there are three possible reasons why this is happening. Number one, the damage to the frigates Admiral Makarov, Admiral Essen, and an unnamed missile boat was worse than reported. Second, the Russian Ministry of Defense evaluated the attack, how it was accomplished, and what a worst-case scenario would look like, and concluded they don't have a viable answer to prevent future attacks by Ukraine's unmanned surface vessels. Number three, Russia only has enough sea and sub-launched caliber cruise missiles left to support its strategic reserve, and the MOD is reluctant to use the limited resource in the face of improving Ukrainian air defenses. We believe that a combination of number two and number three is the most likely reason. There simply isn't enough evidence from satellite imagery to support the idea that the ships were seriously damaged. On the Russian front in St. Petersburg, the city's air raid sirens were tested for the first time in years, fueling some serious tension. There is no viable threat from any nation that Russian cities will be attacked, with the test likely serving as political theater to continue justification of the war. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The GSAFU outlined how they would respond to an attack coming from Belarus, saying, quote, As soon as Russian forces cross Ukraine's state border, our forces will respond with intensive and large-scale fire. The enemy will be met with traps or unpleasant surprises on every road and path, in every forest and on every hill. Their losses will be enormous. End quote. Maria Zakharova, spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation, 
said that Russia is ready to negotiate with Ukraine, quote, taking into account the current state of affairs, end quote, oddly enough, hours after the announcement that Russia was retreating from Kherson. She stated that Russia has always been ready to negotiate. Kyiv has already stated its foundation to start negotiations, including the complete withdrawal of Russian forces, recognition of the 1991 borders, reparations, and Russia being responsible for rebuilding Ukraine. Speaking of ready to negotiate, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian mobics being trained in Belarus, already dealing with various respiratory and stomach illnesses that sickened an entire brigade, have a new problem. Online complaints emerged about the kit they were issued, including World War II helmets, ballistic vests made in the 1960s and 1970s, and rusty AK-74s that are irreparable due to improper storage. Russia had already widely distributed SSH-68 helmets designed in the Cold War and derided for offering almost no ballistic protection. It is a stunning supply situation if Russia is issuing World War II helmets to fresh conscripts. It is reported that North Korea will supply Russia with winter uniforms and boots, confirming our earlier report that there were ongoing negotiations. The materials are unlikely to reach the front lines in time to have any meaningful impact, and the quality will almost certainly be questionable. We imagine it would be like ordering Russian winter military uniforms from Wish, but worse. Like, maybe they're better off ordering... Russian winter military uniform costumes from Spirit Halloween. In geopolitical news, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced he would not travel to Bali to attend the G20 summit. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who furiously stormed out of a pre-meeting for the G20 summit over the summer, will be representing Russia. Hopefully he won't feel picked on next week. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has not indicated if he will attend virtually and said negotiations were continuing. An announcement is expected sometime today. Ukraine is not part of the G20, but was extended an invitation by Indonesian President Joko Widodo, who hoped he could get the two warring leaders to meet and negotiate. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices dropped, with WTI crude falling to $85 a barrel and Brent hitting $92. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market fell to $2.54 per gallon, or $0.67 per liter. Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 contracts dropped, trading at €113 per megawatt hour. January 2023 contracts also declined, falling to 119 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures were steady, trading at $8.31 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.